Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here at the Heritage Foundation Think Tank up on Capitol Hill to talk to one of the nation's leading experts on North Korea, Bruce Klingner, uh, who's uh, operating without uh, pretty much any sleep. Uh, Bruce, you've only spent 30, more than 30 years preparing for this for, moment. For the big game. Uh, for the big, big game. Um, Obviously, a historic meeting between President Trump and, and King, Kim Jong-un. Uh, there was um, a, a lot of great symbolics uh, where, uh, you know, he arrived earlier to pay deference to uh, the elder. Um, you know, the body language was in a lot of ways right. But from your standpoint, what was accomplished, what was not accomplished, and what are potentially some bad precedents? Because you voiced your concern a little bit about how we're getting off for this, uh, you know, getting off in this relationship. Right. There's a, a lot of focus has been on the substance, the fact that it's a historic first ever meeting between a U.S. Uh, leader and the North Korean leader, uh, the deference, all that. I, I focus more on sort of the documents, what actually came out of this. And th the joint statement I found uh, extremely disappointing. Uh, the, the administration had, had hinted that North Korea was coming over to not only the U.S. view of CVID, comprehensive or complete verifiable irreversible dismantlement, but that's also required under U.N. resolutions. Um, but we saw no movement at all. And so there were four main pillars in the joint statement, each one of which had been in previous commitments and agreements with North Korea. Uh, and in many of those previous agreements, they were stronger, they were more encompassing. Uh, and of particular note, the denuclearization uh, section uh, was stronger in a September 2005 six-party talks joint statement. So uh, there was also no talk about verification or, or human rights, uh, at least in the, the joint statement. Um, and, and I should uh, point out that even though we're at uh, one of the nation's leading conservative think tanks, you've been an equal opportunity critic. So uh, you were critical about stuff that the Bush administration was doing wrong, as you were for the Obama administration and as you are in this in this instance. So I can vouch for, for Bruce's uh, nonpartisan uh, bona fides uh, in, in this. Um, what did the president um, make a mistake uh, by giving away exercises and, and pretty much agreeing to the North Korean line that they're provocative and effectively surprising our most important ally, the South Koreans, uh, who were surprised by this. And actually, in fact, the Japanese were surprised by this as well uh, in an the U.S. military. So, so you know, was that a big mistake that the president made? I, I think it was. Uh, for several years, North Korea has been pushing what we call a freeze-for-freeze proposal. They would freeze their nuclear and missile tests in return for the U.S. and South Korea freezing our military exercises. Uh, Washington and Seoul correctly rejected that every time uh, because, in essence, North Korea was trying to negotiate something they didn't legally possess. They're not allowed to do nuclear and missile tests under the numerous U.N. Security Council resolutions, whereas the U.S. and South Korea can do military exercises. Um, and also, uh, there was no constraint on North Korea's own very large uh, conventional uh, military exercises called the summer training cycle and the winter training cycle. So it was sort of an apples and oranges kind of, of proposal. A more logical one would be constraints uh, on both military exercises, North and the, and the, the Allied, uh, but North Korea hasn't done that. So what the president did was really give in on our half of that proposal without getting anything in return. The North Korea didn't even codify their existing 
self-imposed moratorium on nuclear and missile tests, though not allowed to do that under resolutions. Uh, so we didn't really get anything in return. And the problem with the uh, abandoning the exercises is it can degrade allied deterrent and defense capability against the North Korean conventional nuclear and, and missile threat. Um, each time we've seen with the North Koreans, uh, there's been there's been hope. Uh, there were positive signs. They were made in the Clinton administration. They were made again during the Bush administration. Uh, the Obama administration took a different position. Uh, you know, faced criticism for not having been uh, taken more action. But um, you know, what's what's next in this cycle? Given that the North Koreans historically have been the one that have taken advantage of Western leaders or, or, or South Korean leaders who want to deal, but ultimately always renege on it. What, what do you think the next steps have to be here? Well, I, I've seen eight international agreements with North Korea all fail. Um, it's, it wasn't because we weren't doing a, a unique uh, approach to it. It was because North Korea always either cheated or failed to fulfill their obligations. And, and what I've always been critical of the previous agreements for, was for two things. One was a very short, very vague uh, text as compared with the very detailed, uh, detailed text of arms control treaties we had with the Soviet Union. Uh, those arms control treaties very clearly delineated everyone's responsibilities in just almost painful detail, defining the terms, defining how things were considered destroyed, uh, inspections, et cetera. The second aspect is needing a very robust verification uh, protocol. Again, not present in the, uh, the North Korean agreements and were present in the arms control treaties. We didn't like the Soviets, we didn't trust the Soviets, but because we had sufficient verification, we could move forward. We had either the opportunity to catch them cheating or the verification if you do challenge inspections and you don't find anything that's uh, outside of the, uh, the parameters of the agreement, well, then it's a positive. It's a confidence and security building measure. But if you don't have those measures, you really don't have an agreement. So what I'm hoping for, uh, I had hoped for it in this summit, but at least in the follow-on, is moving towards very clearly delineated text and a sufficient verification. Um, there were uh, numerous people you and I have known who were almost uh, uh, ready for a Swiss citizenship with, with the Soviet Union in terms of how much time they would spend in Geneva trying to hammer out mm -hmm. uh, some of those uh, agreements with their Soviet uh, counterparts in, in, in terrific detail. Um, the president is taking credit for this. There are those who are giving the president credit for this, but there are others who see that Kim is actually the guy who's been driving the train on, on this. Who do you think is driving the train on this, uh, ultimately, from your perspective as somebody who's watched this so, so closely? Not, not trying to put anybody down, but r realistically, who's, who's driving this, this, this train, and how do we need to think about what's next in these talks? Right. Another uh, analogy is people ask, who's in the driver's seat, Trump or Moon or, or Kim? It, which kind of raises the image of three drivers and three cars hurtling towards an intersection, each one you know, convinced that they have the right of way and the other two will yield. Well, maybe you can get all three cars squeaking through the intersection or you have a horrendous uh, pileup. And, and also sort of Trump, like a typical man, refusing to ask directions from anyone. Um, so you know, I think in a way there's a, a, you know, a, a perfect storm of factors. The, the hawks, the doves, and the 
pythons will all claim credit. The hawks will say it was the threats of war uh, that drove Kim to the table. Perhaps it had more impact on the South Korean leader than the, the North Korean leader. Uh, the doves will say after 10 years of ignoring us, you're finally listening to the need to go back to diplomacy. Uh, the pythons uh, will say that it's the, the pressure, the squeezing North Korea through sanctions that finally brought them in. Um, I think it's a combination of all of those. But even that's a bit too U.S.-centric. It's, uh, as you're pointing out, the Kim Jong-un, he, he is doing things differently than his father. Sort of the same game plan, but just, I think, a little bit better PR, a little more effectively. Uh, he's sort of doing it on steroids, a charm offensive. Moon Jae-in clearly is, is trying to be not only a, a messenger, but a mediator between the two sides. And maybe even just the fact that the Olympics were in South Korea facilitated the, the movement by North Koreans to meet with senior uh, South Koreans. So I think really there's a lot of factors which brought us to where we are. So what's next? Um, as we uh, look at this, there are some folks who are saying that, look, there are positive steps in general. I think the mood very much is, um, uh, you know, to be careful. But what's next? Well, there are going to be, need to be follow-on meetings. And the president last night even saying that uh, maybe next week there, there will be meetings. We don't know if that's at the Pompeo level or, or Song Kim or other level. Uh, you really need to put, uh, you know, hefty meat on this very uh, uh, spindly skeleton. Uh, the, the joint statement is, is very flawed, but we need to put a lot more detail into it. And, um, you know, the problem is so far North Korea hasn't indicated that it's willing to accept CVID. They're still using their their definition of uh, denuclearization, which they see as global arms control, not unilateral disarmament. And as a self-professed member of the nuclear club, they'll go to zero when everyone else goes to zero. So really a wide chasm between their view of denuclearization and the rest of the world. Um, I, I don't necessarily want to tie this to um, what happened at the G7, but have talked to diplomatic sources of mine, and, and they said, look, um, part of um, the concern was that the president was going to bend over backwards for a deal to show gain where none was seen with some of our G7 uh, allies. Mm -hmm. But the broader concern was that of, of negative surprise, that our European allies saw that, the Japanese now saw this, and the South Koreans. Is there a broader issue? You know, you talked about homework. You know, normally these sorts of summits, there's a lot of consultation, there's a lot of discussion. Folks like you are brought in in large numbers before, uh, which has been something that happened to you on a bipartisan level, a lot less this time around. Is there an issue with strategic surprise coming from this administration that's potentially negative over the long term? Because some, even our closest allies, want to be surprised, would like to be surprised less than they're being surprised. Right. Well, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, President Trump sort of embraces the idea of being unpredictable. He thinks that it gives him leverage when he does negotiations or sort of what he sees as business deals between countries. Um, so it's hard to predict an unpredictable president. Um, and also, there's the, the administration has had a lot of trouble with message control. We have, uh, you know, con conflicting messaging or, or policy proposals from State Department versus NSC versus the president. The president has often been on many sides of the fence at once. Um, so it, it's sort of hard to keep track of what U.S. policy towards North Korea is, even on a daily basis. Um, the, the president will talk about fire and fury, then he'll talk about being honored to meet with uh, Kim Jong-un, who's on the U.S. sanctions list for human rights violations. Um, so I think the summit, you know, the 
expectations were being lowered, the bar for success was being lowered, so that it, it became a what I'd call a BFF summit, best friends forever. So by establishing a friendly relationship with Kim, like Trump did with Xi Jinping a year ago, that's seen as success. So, so establishing the relationship, which will then lead to better deals. We'll, we'll have to see if that uh, strategy works. But what about the notion of surprising your allies? How serious an issue do you think that that is ultimately? I, I think it's it's very much a factor. Uh, and we've seen that uh, certainly with South Korea and Japan. Um, if you think of you know just the last few weeks, uh, Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, you know, was seen as having the best relationship of any world leader with, with Trump. He had you know, made a great effort to become friends and, and sort of kowtow to President Trump. Lose at golf, that was one of his got the guidances. Right. Yeah, I think. And uh, uh, so, you know, he saw they were shoulder to shoulder on a very firm policy on North Korean pressure. Well, then all of a sudden, Abe's walking alone and, and Trump is now going the other direction, sort of more towards Moon Jae-in engagement. So uh, Abe felt out in the cold and that led him to sort of rush to a, a summit here in order to get a public affirmation by Trump that short-range and medium-range missiles would be included in the discussions, uh, not just the ICBMs that threaten the American homeland. Uh, and then he had a, another rushed summit to get Trump to publicly sort of commit to raising the Japanese abductee issue. Um, and let's ask, uh, you know, the, the big guy who uh, either shapes or doesn't, depending on how you look at it, the Chinese, uh, who well, also... say Dennis Rodman. But, yeah. Dennis, no, 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 in, in all fairness to the basketball great, I wasn't going to drag him in, okay. into this. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're more than welcome, Bruce, to, to try to tell He did try to muscle his way into, into the summit. Yeah. Um, uh, well, talk to us a little bit about the Chinese, because the Chinese have been um, key in this. Uh, at least in the buildup and some of the discussions to it. Uh, Kim visited uh, Beijing twice to talk to Xi. Uh, on, on the other hand, the Chinese also have been feeling, uh, have been left feeling a little bit out uh, in this. Talk to us about the China factor and how that plays out over the near to midterm as well. Well, they've always been pushing for dialogue instead of confrontation. And they take what I see as a value neutral position. North Korea will attack the South or threaten uh, and then China will say, well, can't you two Koreas just get along? And it's only their Korea that's acting up or threatening or attacking. Um, and so when North Korea does something, it's they'll act like North Korea's lawyer at the UN Security Council. They'll try to water down either the resolution itself or the sanctions enforcement. They turn a blind eye to proliferation and, and sanctions violation on their soil. Uh, and they're always looking to go soft on sanctions enforcement. So they were pleased with this shift from preventive attack by the U.S. to uh, diplomacy. Uh, but then I think they did feel like they were outside looking in with their noses pressed against the window. And so they would have been happy not only with the shift to diplomacy, but also when Kim Jong-un met twice with Xi Jinping. So they feel that they're included. And uh, one last question. Uh, the uh, Iranian advice to Pyongyang was uh, don't trust any agreement that the United States signs. Uh, how important an issue is, is that going to be? And are we going to be in a position where we have some form of six-party verification? You know, is there a way that we don't go through that road, road to get there? And 
Uh, how does that work if there is no faith that the United States will abide by an agreement and strikes? Whether it's a good agreement or a bad agreement, the ultimate thing is we sign these agreements with the United States that transcend administrations, not that have five-year expiration dates on it or can be abrogated at any time. Right. Well, many had, had thought that when the U.S. pulled out of the Iran deal that it would sort of end any kind of diplomacy with North Korea. Um, but it didn't. And clearly, Kim Jong-un showed up at the Singapore summit. So I think it was something that wasn't a surprise. It was very clear Trump was moving in that direction. Uh, so I think it was a risk that North Korea had factored in. Um, but I remember a year ago talking to North Korean officials when they said, well, how can we ever trust you in any future negotiation? You change your policy every four or eight years. And I told him, yes, uh, democracy is very messy. Maybe you ought to try it sometime. Um, that didn't go over well. Uh, but so I think they took that into account. And certainly, um, you know, the Iran deal, the, the switch in, in policies, the confusion of the policies in the Trump administration, uh, and then the issue at the G7. But North Korea stayed at the summit and was willing to continue. So, um, you know, they must be uh, eager enough for either an agreement or appearance of an agreement in order to attain sanctions relief that they're willing to kind of put up with it. Um, and, and that thing you were talking about also was a, a Bolton, where you've referred to it twice, where, where John Bolton, the national security advisor, seemed to be slightly out of sync with the president, certainly bringing up the Libya model, which, which is no, not popular with any dictator out there. Um, and just to follow up on the last question, do you think that there is going to be an international group, whether it's a group of six or a group of seven or uh, any international group that ultimately is going to become party to this agreement, whether they're Russia, China, and the Europeans, to get to a verifiable end state? I mean, IAEA has got to be brought into this yeah, at some point as well. I, I think there has to be an international aspect. So there are going to be different things. A, a peace treaty, if we ever go down that path, I think it's got to be the two Koreas and the U.S. and China, and then it'll be have to be approved by the U.N. Security Council. Uh, I think the six-party talks is a, is a good idea because each of the neighbors of North Korea, as well as the U.S., uh, has issues, strategic interests, strategic concerns, um, abductee issue, other issues uh, that, you know, they can't really rely on other nations to carry their water. So I think, um, you know, the, the six-party talks or something close to it, I think, is something that we'll have to go towards. Uh, Bruce Klingner uh, of the Heritage Foundation, one of the world's leading experts on North Korea and the man who hasn't gotten any sleep but wears it remarkably well. Bruce, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Good to see you.